thank you all for coming back tonight uh, for another period of worship, another period of study, um, and I hope the things that we talk about tonight are encouraging. Um, I want to talk about a subject that's uh, going to be very familiar to a lot of us. Uh, in fact, been a, a wonderful lesson along these lines a little over a year ago, but I think there's a present danger in the world around us, in Franklin even, of folks who are questioning the music that we use in our worship today and uh, are suggesting that we could even use instrumental music in worship to God. We, as you know, we, we only sing, uh, and we do that because we believe the scriptures authorize that and don't authorize instrumental music. And so tonight I want to talk with you about this, look at it from what the scriptures teach, and, uh, and make sure that we're grounded, especially our kids need to understand what the scriptures teach on this subject. And so I encourage you to follow along. We're going to focus on what the scriptures teach. We're not looking at what men teach. We're not looking at creeds. We're not looking at traditions. We're going to look at what the scriptures teach because we want to make sure that we have God's approval of everything that we do, especially in our worship to him. Because we're worshiping God and the object of our worship is God. We want him to be pleased with the worship that we offer to him. So, should we use instrumental music in worship today? You know, if you were to look in the religious world around us today and, and survey people, I think the majority of folks would say, we, well, there's nothing wrong with instrumental music. In fact, it's something that's always been in churches. But if you look at history, you don't have to dig very deep to understand that the first century church and church, the church throughout time for hundreds of years after the church was established in the first century did not use instrumental music. It is a recent invention. It's a recent addition to worship of God. And it wasn't that way. Historians are uh, unanimous almost in this opinion that, that the first century church and churches for hundreds of years after did not use instrumental music in worship to God. So their practice, nonetheless, let's look at what the scriptures teach. Is instrumental music authorized in worship today? First off, we do need to establish some very basic principles. And so I'm going to spend some time here at the beginning of this lesson establishing some principles that we can use to determine the answer to this question. The first one is that God does care how he's worshipped. You know, there are some people in the world today who would say, if I'm worshipping God, if I'm giving praise to him, that's all that matters. It doesn't really matter the details of how I do it. That God doesn't really care. If you worship him, he's glad. And so you can worship him your way. I'll worship him my way. And really, God doesn't really care about the details. He does care how he's, worship, he's worshipped. Back in Genesis chapter 4, the first instance we see of mankind worshipping God, notice that God had a preference for how he was worshipped. In Genesis chapter 4, beginning of verse 3. Genesis chapter 4, beginning of verse 3. And in the process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord. Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat. And the Lord respected Abel and his offering, but he did not respect Cain and his offering. And Cain was angry and his countenance fell. Cain and Abel brought offerings to God. They both were worshiping God. They both had a desire to worship God, Cain and Abel. Now... Abel's offering was something that God liked, and Cain's offering was something that God did not like. God cared how Cain and Abel worshipped him. Now, why did God do that? Was that just some kind of arbitrary decision that God made? Well, 
you know, I sort of like what, uh, what Abel brought to me. I, you know, I, they got lucky. They just brought, Cain brought what, he li- or what uh, Abel brought what I like. Cain didn't. No. God had told them what he wanted. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 4, notice what uh, the Hebrews writer's commentary on this instant is. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 4, By faith Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts, and through it he being dead still speaks. By faith, Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain. Abel did what he did by faith. How do you do something by faith? Well, the only way you can do something by faith is if God tells you that's what he wants. Romans chapter 10, verse 17 says, So then faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. So at some point, it's not recorded for us in the book of Genesis, but at some point, God told Cain and Abel, Here's what I want from you in sacrifice. Abel listened to that. Abel did what God said. Cain didn't. And at the end of the day, God was pleased and ate with Abel. He was not pleased with Cain. God cares how he's worshipped. And so to this idea that many in the religious world today have is that it doesn't really matter. You worship God however you like. You decide how you want to worship God and you worship him and he'll be happy with that. No, we see from the story of Cain and Abel that God cares how he's worshipped. In 1 Samuel chapter 15, in 1 Samuel chapter 15, Saul is given the instruction to go and kill all of the Amalekites, wipe them out, and and not take any plunder. Saul disobeys that. But he justifies that disobedience in saying, you know, God, we were going to worship you with what we took as plunder. And Samuel said, God doesn't want that kind of worship. In 1 Samuel chapter 15, beginning of verse 21, But the people took of the plunder, sheep and oxen, the best of the things which should have been utterly destroyed, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. Then Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft, and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Samuel tells Saul, you know, great, you're going to worship God. But what God would rather, that you obeyed him, that you do what he said. And just because Saul was going to worship God, Samuel didn't say, oh, you're going to worship God, that's fine. God will be happy with that. No, God wanted obedience. In Malachi chapter 1, beginning of verse 6, a verse that's often referenced as we get ready to give of our means. In Malachi chapter 6, beginning of verse 6, Malachi 1, beginning of verse 6, a son offers his father and a servant his master. If I then am the father, where is my honor? And if I'm a master, where is my reverence, says the Lord of hosts to you priests who despise my name? Yet you're saying, what way have we despised your name? You offer defiled food on my altar, but saying, what way have we defiled you? By saying the tabernacle of the Lord is, in, is contemptible. And when you offer the blind as a sacrifice, is it not evil? And when you offer the lame and sick, is it not evil? Offer it then to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you favorably, says the Lord of hosts? Now, they were doing a lot of things in God's service. In fact, they were even making some sacrifices in God's service. But it wasn't what God wanted because God cares how he's worshipped. God says, you can't bring me this stuff, this junk, this this secondhand stuff that you don't care about and offer that in worship and accept me to be uh, pleased with that because I care how I'm worshipped, God says. God cares how he's worshipped. 
We need to keep this in the foremost of our thoughts as we're trying to answer this question, should we use instrumental music today? God cares how he's worshipped. Furthermore, I want to tell you that God is concerned about the details. When we talk about what kind of music should we use in worship to God, someone will say, well, you're just sort of being picky about that. You're being sort of nitpicky as trying to determine should we use instruments or not. That doesn't really matter. Those little details don't matter. But I want to tell you, God cares how he is worshipped, and God is a God of details. When God gives instructions, he expects those instructions to be carried out. In Exodus chapter 25, verse 9, in Exodus chapter 25, verse 9, as you read through the book of Exodus, there are pages upon pages of details of how God wanted the tabernacle to be made, how he wanted the, uh, the furniture in the tabernacle to be made, how he wanted things to be constructed, pages upon pages. If you ever get insomnia, that's a good passage to turn to because it gets very tedious. And it's curious to me that God would take and record that for us throughout time for thousands of years now. People, as they've been copying the Bible by hand, and now that we have machines to copy, we're using ink and paper to record these instructions on how to build a tabernacle. You know, when you build something, you need the instructions one time. When you get a, uh, maybe you get a bicycle for the kids and it's got the instructions in it, or you get some other thing that has to be a symbol for the kids. You know, they give you those instructions. Those instructions are usually printed on real flimsy paper. Why is that? Because you're not going to need them after you build it. After you build it, you throw it away. But God recorded this for us for thousands of years. Why is that? Because of this principle here. In Exodus 25, verse 9, According to all that I show you, that is, the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all its furnishings, just so you shall make it. Make it just like I told you. God is a God of details. And when he tells us to do something one way, we need to do it that way. We're not at liberty to make up our minds on how we want to do that. The Hebrew writer references this again in Hebrews chapter 8, verse 5. Notice Hebrews chapter 8, verse 5. Who serve the copy and shadow of the heavenly things as Moses was divinely instructed when he was about to make the tabernacle. For he said, see that you make all things according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. God gave Moses a pattern. And when God gives a pattern, he expects people to do that and use it and do what he said to do. And Moses is getting ready and he says, now you make sure you do it the way that I told you to do it. God cares about the details. When he gives us instructions in his word, we need to follow those instructions and do that. Now in Leviticus chapter 10, after the tabernacle has been made, after they're worshiping God, God had given other instructions about how that worship was to be carried out. And one of the ways was, when you're going to offer me sacrifice, you need to use a special fire for that. In Leviticus chapter 10, notice verse 1 beginning, Nadab and Abihu did not pay attention to the details. They were worshiping God, but not paying attention to the details. In Leviticus chapter 10 beginning in verse 1, then Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it, put incense on it, and offered profane fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. So fire went out from the Lord and devoured them, and they died before the Lord. Nadab and Abihu didn't pay attention to the details, did they? And they were struck dead for it. Oh, well, that's just being picky. No, when God gives instructions... He expects people to follow those instructions. Nadab and Abihu didn't. 
Now, well, wait a minute. We're worshiping God. What's the big deal? It matters. And here's why. Look at verse 3. And Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord spoke, saying, By those who come near me, I must be regarded as holy, and before all the people I must be glorified. So Aaron held his peace. When we disregard the instructions that God has given us, when God says, do it this way, and we say, nah, I'm going to do it my way, you know what that does? That doesn't glorify God. In fact, that profanes Him. He's not regarded as holy. He's not glorified because He said to do it one way, and we say, nah, I got a better idea, I'm going to do it my way. That doesn't glorify God. That doesn't make Him holy in our eyes, in the eyes of others. God doesn't like it when we don't follow the details and we don't uh, worship Him like we should. God's concerned about the details. Look at John chapter 4, verse 20, verse 20 beginning. John 4, verse 20, Jesus is talking to the Samaritan woman at the well. And when she realizes who He is, she has an urgent question for Him. In John chapter 4, verse 20, our fathers worshiped on this mountain, and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where we ought to worship, or one ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know. For salvation is of the Jews. Notice this. But the hour is coming, and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and truth. You've got to worship God with the right attitude. But you've got to do the things that He said, because God cares about the details. God is concerned about how He was worshipped. He cares about the details. And as a result, we've got to make sure that we have authority for all that we do. We must make sure that we have authority for all that we do. <clears throat> We need to be doing what the Bible tells us to do. In Matthew chapter 21, in Matthew chapter 21, Jesus is being addressed by the chief priests and the elders. They're trying to trap Jesus. They're trying to figure out why has he just come in here and stirred things up in the temple. Notice what they ask. Now, when he came into the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people confronted him as his, he was teaching and said, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? But Jesus answered and said to them, I will ask you one thing, which if you tell me, I will likewise tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, where was it from? From heaven or of men? They reasoned among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he'll say to us, Why then did you not believe him? But if we say from men, we fear the multitude, for all count John as a prophet. So they answered Jesus and said, We do not know. And he said unto them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. The chief priests and the elders had one important question for Jesus, and it was a valid question. Where do you get the authority for the things that you're doing? And Jesus didn't answer that and say, well, that's a stupid question. Who cares? No, Jesus agreed that's a valid question. Where do you get the authority for the things that you're doing? And Jesus knew that that authority could come from two places, and so did the chief priests and the elders. It can either come from God or it can come from men. And Jesus had them where he wanted them because they weren't going to answer that question. Because they knew that if they said that the baptism of John was from heaven, then they needed to be doing it. If they said it was from men, then all the people would be mad at them because they thought John was telling them the truth from God. But that establishes the principle that we need to be grounded on. 
that we need to have authority for all that we do, and that authority can, can, come, can come from heaven or from men. In Matthew chapter 15, in Matthew chapter 15, Jesus shows us what's wrong when our authority comes from men instead of God. In Matthew chapter 15, beginning of verse 7, Hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy about you, saying, These people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me, and in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Jesus says, yeah, you can get your authority from men. You can teach as doctrines the commandments of men, but when you do that, it makes your worship vain. God wants us to worship Him. He cares how we worship Him. He cares about the details. One of those details is we need to have authority from God in order to worship Him correctly. Colossians chapter 3, verse 17 says, And whatever you do, in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Doing things by the name of the Lord Jesus means that we have His authority. We pray in Jesus' name. That just doesn't mean we just say Jesus' name at the end of our prayers. We pray with the authority of Jesus. Jesus gave us the authority and the ability to approach our Father in heaven with our petitions. And so we pray in His name. And, Je and uh, Paul says everything we do needs to be done in His name or by the authority that He's given us. And so I need to be go able to go to the Bible and say, here's the authority for what I'm doing. And the way that we get that authority is in three easy ways. The first of those being a direct command. When the Bible says, do this or don't do that, you have the authority to do this or not do that. In Ephesians chapter 6, verse 2, kids, listen up. It says, honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise. There's your authority, kids, for obeying your mom and your dad. God said to. He said to honor your father and mother. He said in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 17, to pray without ceasing. There's authority. When God says do something, then we better be doing it. When he says don't do something, we better not be doing it. We get authority from direct commands or statements in the Bible. Furthermore, we get our authority from approved examples. In Philippians chapter 4, verse 9, verse 9 Paul says, Listen, I've been doing things among you. You've been seeing me do things. I've talked to you about people doing things. And he says, when you see those things, you need to emulate them. You need to duplicate them. In Philippians 4, verse 9, the, th the things which you learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do, and the God of peace will be with you. Paul says, the things you saw me doing, you need to be doing those yourself. When we go to the Bible and we see that people in the Bible did things that God approved of, then we need to be emulating those things in our lives. Because we know that if God approved of them, then He'll approve of them now. And we look at Paul's life and we see how Paul conducted his life. Paul says, live like I lived. Do what I did. If you follow my example, God approved of it for me. He'll approve of it for you. So we learn how to get authority by direct commands, or by looking at examples of things that God approved of in the New Testament and following those practices. And then third, we learn authority and we get authority by a thing called necessary inference or an unavoidable conclusion. When we read things in the scriptures, there are some conclusions that we have to draw to know what God wants from us. In Acts chapter 20, verse 7, in Acts chapter 20, verse 7, we read about disciples partaking of the Lord's Supper. And they did this in Acts 20, verse 7. Now on the first day of the week when the disciples came together to break bread, 
Paul, ready to depart on the next day, spoke to them and continued his message until midnight. We read about Jesus establishing the Lord's Supper. But what day of the week should we take the Lord's Supper on? Well, Acts chapter 20, verse 7 gives us that day. Because we know that first century Christians took it on the first day of the week, on Sunday. And so there's your approved example. They took of it on the first day of the week, and God was pleased with that. Then, if we take of it on the first day of the week in 2022 in Franklin, Tennessee, God will, be approved of, uh, will approve of it then too. But what first day of the week should we take it on? Should it be the first Sunday of the quarter, first Sunday of the year, two or three times a year? When should we do it? Well, there's no reference to any specific first day of the week here, no specific Sunday. And so we have to conclude, the unavoidable conclusion is, that God wants Christians to take of the Lord's Supper on Sundays, on every Sunday. Acts chapter 20, verse 7. And so, we have to have authority for all that we do. We get that authority by direct command, by approved examples, or by unavoidable conclusions. And furthermore, we need to be reminded this evening that silence is prohibitive, not permissive. The Bible talks about a lot of different subjects and gives us authority on a lot of different things. But the Bible is silent in a lot of areas. And when it is silent, we need to respect the silence of the Scriptures and respect the fact that if God hasn't explicitly condemned or commanded something, that we're not at liberty to add it. Back in Leviticus chapter 10. In Leviticus chapter 10, beginning of verse 1, we read this, story, this account of Nadab and Abihu, but notice what the problem was. They offered profane fire before the Lord, which He had not commanded them. God hadn't given the instruction for them to use this fire, and as a result, it was profane. It was prohibited. They weren't at liberty to just use any fire that, he had, that they wanted to. No, He had specified the fire that He wanted, and this was something that He hadn't talked about, He hadn't commanded them to do, and as a result, it was prohibitive. Now, prohibited. In Acts chapter, or Hebrews chapter 11, Hebrews chapter 7, the passage that Mark read for us, talks about the fact that Jesus couldn't be a priest under the Old Testament system. And Jesus couldn't be a priest because He was of the tribe of Judah. Now, in the Old Testament, God had said, if you're going to be a priest, you have to be a priest of the tribe of Levi. That was the instruction. He said, if you're going to be a priest, you've got to be a Levite. He didn't say, now, if you're of the tribe of, of Gad, you can't be a priest. If you're a tri of the tribe of Asher, you can't be a priest. If you're a tribe of, of, the tribe of uh, Manasseh, can't be a priest. He didn't list them all, did he? He said, if you're going to be a priest, you got to be a priest, you got to be a Levite. Jesus is of the tribe of Judah. God said nothing concerning the priesthood. Hebrews chapter 11, verse, or chapter 7, verse 14, it is evident that our Lord arose out of Judah, of which tribe Moses spake nothing concerning the priesthood. God hadn't said you can't be a, a priest if you're of the tribe of Judah. Moses had been silent on that. And the silence of Moses then prohibited Jesus from being a priest under the Old Testament law. He's our priest today. Therefore, the Hebrew writer concludes, if he's going to be our priest, he couldn't have been a priest under the Old Testament. Therefore, we have to be under a new covenant today, the New Testament. Silence is prohibitive, not permissive. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, in 2 Samuel chapter 7, 
King David is enjoying prosperity in his kingdom. He is, uh, he's been successful in his battles. Things are going great for him. And he gets sitting around and he starts to think. He says, you know what? I think it'd be a good idea if we built a temple for God. We've been uh, in the promised land for so many years now, and God still is being worshipped in that tabernacle, that tent. We can do a lot better than that. I've got a lot of means now, got a lot of prosperity. I can make God a, just a fabulous temple. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to make him a fabulous temple. Look at 2 Samuel chapter 7, beginning of verse 1. Now it came to pass when the king was dwelling in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies all around, that the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells inside tent curtains. Then Nathan said to the king, Go do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But it happened that night that the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, Go tell my servant David, Thus says the Lord, Would you build a house for me to dwell in? For have I not dwelt in a house since the time that I brought the children of Israel up out of Egypt? For I have not dwelt in a house since the time I brought the children of Israel up from Egypt, even to this day, but have moved about in a tent and in a tabernacle. Wherever I have moved about with all the children of Israel, have I ever spoken a word to anyone from the tribes of Israel, whom I commanded to shepherd my people, Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? God says, did I ever say that that's what I wanted? David had this wonderful idea, and a sincere idea, no doubt. He was going to make a lot of sacrifice in that, no doubt. He's not going to just use secondhand materials. He's not going down to the junkyard, and he's going to just cobble something together. David was going to make a nice temple for God. And God says, you know what? I never said that's what I wanted. You're being presumptuous. You're acting in an area of silence. God said, if I wanted a temple, I'd told you to build me a temple. That's not what I want. He didn't ask for it. Silence is not permissive. In 2 John verse 9, in 2 John verse 9, John says it this way, Whoever transgresses and does not abide in the doctrine of Christ does not have God. He who abides in the doctrine of Christ has both the Father and the Son. And so as we're trying to determine what we're going to do, whatever the subject may be, We've got to make sure that we're abiding in the doctrine of Christ, that we're doing what He said to do. It's so vitally important. It's important because God cares how He's worshipped. He's concerned with the details. He demands that we have authority for all that we do, and silence is not permission to act. God is not giving us permission when He's silent. And so then we get to the question, should we use instrumental music today? And the answer to that question is, the New Testament only authorizes singing in worship to God. Using these principles that we've established, and as we look at the New Testament today, the only references to music and worship to God are that of vocal music. No instruction, no inference that we ought to be using instruments in our worship to God today. Let's look at every passage in the New Testament where music is referenced in the church Ephesians chapter 5, verse 19, notice, notice the details that are given here and notice what's missing. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 19 says, Speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, notice this, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. 
We're given a command here. And that command is to worship God with music. What kind of music? We're to be singing and making melody with our heart, in our hearts to the Lord. Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3, verse 16 is very similar. Colossians 3, verse 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. How do we worship God? I worship God by singing with grace in my heart. That's how I, that's how I worship Him. He's been very clear. In James chapter 5, verse 13, James chapter 5, verse 13, an instruction about individual worship. Notice the instruction about individual worship. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing psalms. Now I can use all the principles that we're going to talk about about corporate worship here in, in reference to, to my individual worship. And that individual worship is told that we need to be singing. In Acts chapter 16, verse 25, we see Christians doing just that. Paul and Silas, as they're in, uh, their feet are in stocks in the prison in, Phil in Philippi, in Acts chapter 16, verse 25, at midnight. Can you imagine? At midnight in a dungeon with your feet in stocks, what are they doing? They are praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. What an impact that had to make on those other prisoners to see the faith of Paul and Silas as they're being imprisoned for their faith. They're still praying and singing praises to God. Paul and Silas sang. Romans chapter 15, verse 9. Romans chapter 15, verse 9. A reference to what would happen in the church. In Romans 15, verse 9, And that the Gentiles might glorify God for His mercy as it is written, For this reason I will confess to you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. Again, we're looking at every passage in the New Testament that references music in the church and our worship to God. And we're seeing here that they are singing. In 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 5, 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 5, what is the conclusion then? I will pray with the Spirit, and I'll also pray with the understanding. I'll sing with the Spirit. I'll also sing with the understanding. Again, worship to God, what is it? It's singing. We're seeing a lack of any reference to instruments here. And in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 12, in a reference to what Jesus uh, would do, saying, I will declare your name to my brethren in the midst of the assembly. I'll sing praise to you. Every reference to music and worship to God, both corporately as a church and as an individual, is singing. There's no reference to, to instruments. And so as a result, we have to conclude that God wants us to worship Him with music, but He wants that music to be vocal music, to be singing. There's no authority for instrumental music in our worship today because God cares how He's worshipped. He's cared throughout time, all the way to the beginning of time. The first act of worship that we see, God cared how He was worshipped. He's concerned about the details. He went to all that trouble to tell Moses how he wanted the tabernacle to be built. As we see other de examples of details mattering to God throughout time, he cares about the details. We've got to have authority for all that we do. Otherwise, our worship is in vain. And silence does not give us permission. Just because the New Testament doesn't say don't worship with instruments, we've learned that silence is prohibitive instead of permissive. And since God didn't say anything about instruments, we have no authority to use them. Again, the only reference to music 
in worship to God in the New Testament is in to use uh, vocal music in singing. Well, I hope that's been a good reminder for some of you, maybe new information for those in our kind of group that are younger, but it's important. As I said, there are people who are attacking this concept, saying that we're just wrapped up in tradition by not using instruments, that God doesn't really care whether we use instruments or not. And I think, as we've seen tonight, that God does care. If we're going to worship God in spirit and in truth, we've got to do it as he's instructed, with his authority. And we'll do that by worshiping him in song. What about you tonight? Are you living like you should? Are you devoted to following God's will in every aspect of your life? We must. God wants to be glorified and honored. We glorify and honor God by doing what he said to do. And that's in our corporate worship together, but that's in our personal lives as well. If I'm not following God's instructions in my life, I'm not honoring him. I'm not bringing glory to him. That's what God wants from us. If you're not bringing glory to him and you're not honoring him in your life, there's no better time than right now to make correction to that. If we can help, let us know while we stand and while we sing.